If you enjoy these podcasts, check out Enrico Signoretti's reports and blogs on gigaohm.com. They're about data storage and cloud computing, addressing all the topics covered in Voices in Data Storage. Hey everybody, Enrico Signoretti here for a new episode of Voices in Data Storage brought to you by Gigaohm. Today, I want to talk to you about uh, data storage and containers. Uh, and Honestly, if I think about the first time I saw containers in, uh, you know, this Linux thing that uh, that allows to uh, keep the uh, operating system, but actually uh, bring uh, an application in, a, in something that uh, at the very beginning was uh, uh, seen as a different form of virtualization or a different fo- uh, form of distributing. Uh, uh, application that now evolved in uh, something more complex, more mature. And at the, in the beginning, I remember uh, having this conversation with uh, some people that were already working in this kind of environment. So they told me, well, we don't need storage. Okay, Everything is stateless. The world will go stateless in a few years and uh, nobody cares about it. I was really skeptical. Okay, And in fact, what happened? Enterprises started to adopt containers and you know, storage uh, is a thing, and uh, persistent storage, enterprise storage, means uh, availability and this kind of uh, features that we are used to. Uh, we lived a couple of years of confusion. I mean, several initiatives, projects uh, that uh, went uh, sideways, and uh, everything was a mess. Now we have uh, uh, CSI which is uh, the standard for Kubernetes. And uh, so maybe things are getting better, but there are a lot of questions that uh, enterprises have on uh, storage and Kubernetes. So for so to talk about this topic today, I invited uh, Michael Ferranti from uh, Portworks. He's the VP of product marketing there. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting today. Great. So uh, thank you for the time you took to record this uh, podcast today. And uh, I usually ask my, my guests to, to give me a short intro- introduction about themselves and their company. Yeah, happy to do it. So, I mean, hearing your intro, um, I really kind of, it, it gave me a, a number of flashbacks Uh, Because what you just described in terms of the very, very early days of the containerization movement um, was was uh, one in which we said, you know what, containers are for stateless apps. You know, if you if you have a stateful app, you know, first of all, I'm sorry for you. Um, You're doing it wrong. But, you know, if you're going to do it anyway, then you need to run that outside of containers. And my my containerization journey started at that point. Um, I was I was working. at a company called Rackspace with a team that was was building and running a SaaS application. And, and the engineers on that team were using containers. In fact, um, uh, one of my colleagues at the time was on Docker's homepage uh, as a customer testimonial talking about just how powerful a technology Docker was. And at, at that time, I was starting to think about, okay, you know, I, I really like my job, but I want to do a startup. I want to, you know, you know, build something from scratch, not just be a part of, you know, an existing company or, you know, even even a very successful one. And I said, you know, I, I want to do something around containers because if, if developers are this excited about it, then there's got to be something there. 
And so then I said, well, what, what about containers? And I, I just started looking at the enterprise IT stack and I said, okay, well, you could do something around containerization itself. That's kind of a compute problem. I could do something around networking. I could do something around security. I could do something around storage. And in the process of this, I, I met an entrepreneur who had actually built a um, storage and data management solution for a alternative version of containers, um, uh, BSD jails. And because was really convinced me that in order for containers to be useful, you had to have storage and data management as part of it. And as, as soon as I told my friends and my colleagues um, that I was going to go and join this startup that was going to do storage and data management for containers, I got the reaction that you, that you talked about at the beginning of the call, which is, you're crazy. Like, you, you, you obviously don't understand what containers are for. You don't understand how modern applications are state, stateless. Um, and I, I knew that based on that feedback, either my decision to quit my comfortable job and join a startup looking at this space was either a giant mistake um, or potentially um, a giant success. And I think the intervening five years, that was in June of 2014, um, the, the month that Kubernetes coincidentally launched, um, you know, about a year after Docker itself had, had come on the scene. And in the five intervening years, I think, as you pointed out, you know, containerization itself has come into its own. Um, enterprises are now saying, how do, I, how do I use this for my entire IT stack, which means that we can't ignore data um, and all of the attendant data concerns around security and performance and reliability and disaster recovery. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm more convinced than ever that if these problems can't be solved, then, then containers are just going to be a blip in IT history. Um, the same way if, if VMware never m moved beyond test dev, if vSphere could never be used for anything other than test dev environments, um, then not only would VMware not be what it is today, but we wouldn't have Amazon. Um, we, 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 would, we would have Google, but they would still be just be doing search in YouTube. Right? We wouldn't have GCP. We wouldn't have Azure because that required virtualization technology that could run enterprise apps. And I think we're at the same point now with containers where unless we can bring on those true enterprise class applications, um, you know, they're not going to live up to uh, their potential. Yes, indeed. So we, uh, a lot of uh, time passed uh, and, uh, and now finally we, we are seeing uh, enterprises adopting uh, Kubernetes mostly, okay. Kubernetes is the orchestrator on which you base your infrastructure, and then on top of it, you run your applications, okay. And at some extent, I mean, uh, uh, all these uh, microservices based on uh, Kubernetes and containers uh, could be uh, stateless. I mean, you can uh, use external databases. You can uh, you can use external. Uh, um, object source, okay. Theoretically, you can do it uh, without uh, having storage managed inside uh, the Kubernetes cluster. But actually, there are a few issues, okay. The, the first that comes to my mind is, for example, portability of this application. I mean, if you if you are uh, leveraging external services, how can you be sure that in the next environment where you you are uh, going? To move your application so you can replicate the same identical thing i don't know if you agree with this but uh, maybe you have uh, something more to add on that yeah absolutely portability is is a huge concern um and you know if, if you're if you're running on amazon and you're using rds rds is a great service 
and I'm not I'm not going to discount it entirely. Uh, but if you're running, if you're using RDS behind your Kubernetes platform, then you need to know that you are binding your your containerized applications to Amazon. It's going to be very very challenging um, to move those applications to Azure. Um, it's going to be very difficult to move it to Google. It's going to be very difficult to move it on prem. Um, and that includes from a DR perspective. Um, and most of the customers that we work with um, are are picking Kubernetes because it allows them to escape their own data center, but also to avoid ven- vendor lock-in at the cloud perspective. They they and the customers that want to avoid vendor lock-in, like these are not people that don't like their cloud provider. They absolutely love Amazon. They love Google. They love Azure. Uh, but they're realistic, um, right? They, they they saw what happened in their own data center uh, with VMware um, that they also love from a technology perspective, but but ultimately was limiting. I mean, they don't want to repeat those same mistakes. And so that's one of the big reasons we are seeing customers put their data services directly on Kubernetes so they can have that portability. That's That's very, very important to them from a risk perspective and from a reliability perspective. Yeah, so the portability is... Uh... Is an important aspect, but actually, with the introduction with uh, of the CSI and the acronym means uh, uh, Container Storage uh, Initiative Interface. Oh, container. Okay, uh, and uh, actually, the acronym means um, Container Storage Interface. Um, you know, now all the vendors, primary vendors, startups, everybody is developing a CSI plugin. Okay, so uh, why should I? Think of another uh, storage platform in my data center. I mean, I already, I already have everything. Can we avoid to have something and stay with my traditional array? Why not? Uh, you know, that's a great question, and and I'll 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 explain why I answer it in a particular way because obviously everything depends on the details, um, and so I can't provide an architectural recommendation without understanding the, the, the differences. So I'm gonna make some assumptions and I'll just lay them out. So the first assumption is that you're adopting Kubernetes because you have some amount of scale within your IT environment that requires automation. Uh, Kubernetes was invented at Google before it's called Kubernetes because of YouTube because of Google search. These are large scale systems that you could not manage with an army of SREs. You had to leverage automation. And so if you're picking up Kubernetes and you're using Kubernetes, that means you you yourself have some level of scale that you can't just solve with human operators. Um, If that's the case, then you need to look at whether or not your um, technologies in your stack are able to handle that type of scale. Um, I was, um, and, and so just to get to the, to the storage aspect, you know, can I use my existing storage array um, with a CSI plugin? Um, I, I was speaking to another analyst recently, and, and they said that they had done an inquiry with a, an array vendor who was saying, you know what, in, in a typical, one of our typical arrays, on a daily basis, we're getting dozens of operations that are, that are um, um, uh, performed by a storage administrator. When, when this array goes into a Kubernetes environment, or rather is, is automated or managed by a Kubernetes environment, that number goes up by an order of magnitude. So the number of operations on your array is going to increase dramatically. Um, so, but, and not because, you know, some people think, oh, well, I'm not running tens of thousands of pods. 
And so why would I have tens of thousands of operations, right? I'm only have, I might only have a couple hundred pods and, you know, I'm very easily able to have a couple hundred volumes on my existing array. Uh, the difference is that when you put Kubernetes in charge of your um, a deployment and management, you never know how many times um, that container is going to be deployed and redeployed and moved across your environment because Kubernetes is constantly rebalancing your cluster to maintain the desired state that you define in your application configuration. So you're not in a situation where within a typical VM workload, you're going to deploy an application once and it's going to live in that location pretty much for its entire existence. With Kubernetes, you're going to deploy an application once, then it's going to be moved, then it's going to be moved again, then it's going to be moved again. And that puts stress on um, uh, any system that was not designed with a high level of paralyzed operations in mind. And that pretty much defines um, most SAN or array-based storage systems. Um, the, other, the other thing is that just because I have a CSI plugin does not mean that my storage array can be can be managed via Kubernetes using all the Kubernetes primitives, right? I, I my CSI does not define any particular behavior. It simply is an interface. Um, and so, for instance, you know, if you can take a um, a snapshot of your um, uh, uh, using your storage array, which you know you can because that's that's just basic table stakes functionality. That does not mean, as an example, that you could take a backup with snapshots at a, at a namespace level via Kubernetes. So the storage array itself has to be able to understand what it means to, what, what a namespace is, what resources are associated with that namespace, and how to control them as a group. Um, and so this is one of the things that a lot of our customers um, end up realizing kind of late into the game is that the, the primitives that they expect to be able to use as a part of their Kubernetes deployment, things like namespaces don't have an equivalent within their existing array. Um, and in addition to the scale problem that we that we we um, uh, talked about, you can end up in a situation where you're not able to efficiently manage um, your your storage resources because they don't speak that that Kubernetes native language. Let me try to recap a little bit what we said. First of all, uh, there is a problem of uh, um, amount of operation that can be performed by Kubernetes cluster. And we are, we totally agree on that. I mean, if the, the application needs to scale and you need to spin up, uh, I don't know, 100 uh, containers all in a sudden, the risk is that your uh, array is not able to perform enough operation to provision the resources quickly or quickly enough. Okay. Yeah, and exactly. uh, the second part is, uh, also scale. This is also incompatible for humans and machines working together. Could be very, very, uh, very complicated. I mean, uh, letting your machine doing stuff autonomously is not for everybody. And and the other thing is the level of complexity and all the operators, all the components of a Kubernetes clusters. Uh, can be uh, mapped not really, really one-to-one to, -one to a, a traditional array. So maybe you can find uh, uh, operations that, that somehow uh, don't find their relative in the, in the, in the, 
in the physical platform and you don't really uh, know what is going to happen in, uh, in some operation, especially complex orchestrated operation where you have to take, for example, snapshot of hundreds of containers to, to make a backup copy or replications or things like that. Okay, So that that's, should be the, the case why, uh, th- that should be the reason or the first reason why you should look at uh, a different platform. Okay, is there any other reason uh, uh, be, because you know, uh, I'm sure that uh, over time, in the next uh, one year or two, most of the vendors will come up with solutions to to this. Okay, there will be a new versions of, of their firmware. There will be a new version of their management interfaces, and maybe they will uh, come up with solutions. Okay, is there any other reason for which somebody should think about? Uh, a platform designed for Kubernetes. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are. You know, it's a it's a number, and and really, kind of what is important to the particular enterprise is going to be different. I mean, you know, c- clearly there's a, um, a a trend towards software defined everything. So if if kind of your your data center strategy includes buying a specialized hardware from specialized vendors, that that more and more is is an anti pattern. Um, as you know, the ability you have the ability to use software on top of commodity hardware um, in order to run really large scale enterprise applications. I, you know, one reason I think that VMware, as a little bit of a side, um, kind of rightly uh, embraced Kubernetes as part of its VMware announcements this year is because they're seeing pressure uh, within the enterprise data center uh, uh, to remove vSphere. Um, and to use Kubernetes uh, natively on bare metal servers, and, and they want they want to continue to serve their enterprise customers with a whole host of capabilities, and not just say, okay, well, you know, Kubernetes give me the ability to get rid of vSphere. They don't want that that narrative in the market, and so they're saying, you know what, you can use vSphere to manage your Kubernetes. Um, but all of this is to underscore this idea that many parts of the stack are kind of being architected out, and and we see that. A lot of times with these specialized hardware um, uh, storage systems in, in, in favor of software-defined systems that are, can run in multiple environments, including the cloud, not, not just on-prem. So that, that's one. Um, another reason I would say is, you know, most storage systems think about the world from a storage perspective. And, you know, that, that I, I know that is um, an obvious statement. But I'll, I'll follow it up by saying Kubernetes is not a infrastructure-centric view of the world. It is an application-centric view of the world. So I'll challenge you a little bit. And, and, and Enrico, I have the utmost respect for you. And so please, please understand that you know, I, I, I agree that the enterprise vendors will try to solve the problems that I spoke about. I'm... I'm skeptical that they will be able to because i think there's a fundamental mismatch between an infrastructure view of the world and an application view of the world so as a for instance um you know can contain so so most storage arrays assume because they were based for vm because they were built for vms assume that a single application runs on a single vm and so that i can i can manage an application with machine based um, um, uh, capabilities. So for instance, I can back up an application running in a VM by taking a snapshot of a machine. Th- that 
that doesn't work in a model where you have a multi-container application that's a distributed system that is running across a whole host of machines where if I'm going to take a backup of it, not only do I need to be able to backup individual container volumes across a host of clusters, but I need to be able to influence the application itself to quiesce its database in a way that makes sense for Cassandra or for Kafka or for Elasticsearch, such that I can take that distributed snapshot. That requires software at the app layer. So one, one of the things, and not to make this a pitch for Portworx, but this is, I think, a good illustration of the point that I'm making. So we, we, ha- we basically, for our customers who need to take um, application consistent snapshots and backups of distributed databases like Elasticsearch and, um, and Postgres and, um, uh, excuse me, and, and Kafka and Cassandra, we built a, seri- uh, a tool with pre and post hooks that understands how Kafka needs to be quiesced versus the way Cassandra needs to be quiesced versus the way that um, Elasticsearch needs to be quiesced so that that snapshot can be truly application consistent and resilient against data corruption in the face um, um, in the case of a recovery. And we heard from our storage advisors that you're thinking about the problem wrong. You're a storage provider. You should not be thinking about things at the app layer. That's like one of the few things we don't have to worry about. We have to worry about data loss. We have to worry about data corruption. One of the things though that we can do is say, you know what, that's an application level concern. But from our perspective, our customer is the application owner, the application architect. We want to give them the ability to use storage for the benefit of their application, not for the benefit of infrastructure. And I think some of the the array vendors are going to struggle to develop that application know-how and the ability to execute that application know-how within their software stack, which takes a very infrastructure-focused view. Um, And, you know... I, I'm sure, sure, like any prediction, it's not going to be 100% accurate. But you know, I've I've seen enough times where you know a statement is made at a um uh at, at, in a keynote, but it turns out that years of architectural decisions make it much more difficult to implement. Um, and that's that's the beauty of of technology evolution, which is that you know you know we we wouldn't have seen. Um, things like Kubernetes itself, if, you know, we, we could have just, you know, incrementally changed the way in which we manage VMs. Um, and, and I think that's one of the exciting things, both from a vendor perspective, but also from a customer perspective, you get to take advantage of those changes. Yeah. So we are talking more about data management than proper storage management here. I mean, uh, in the fact that you talk about application, but actually application manages data. And so at the end, you you are thinking more at the application level to um, to get the data consistent in the right way. Something that if you start to think about uh, uh, something that you start to view from, uh, from the storage perspective, uh, storage perspective is much more complicated and and maybe impossible in some cases so it's totally understandable that if you have something that sits in the middle that understands kubernetes and understands the application that are running on it so it can take as you said snapshot uh, making the right call for uh, replications and uh, and so on also another thing that uh, we mentioned at the very beginning is portability okay having this data and storage layer that is portable software means that you can install it 
everywhere. Okay, but then I have a question for you because yes, it's portable, but how port works? At this point, I have to ask this: how portable works? How can I make it live in my own premises infrastructure where I already made, you know, investment in my uh, traditional storage infrastructure, and at the same time having it running on a uh, a cloud, any cloud possible. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So I'll I'll just um, explain a little bit how Portworks works. So we're a hundred percent software solution. So Portworks itself runs as a container, um, and you would use um, your existing Kubernetes um, tech, um, basically processes to to deploy Portworks as as an op- we have an operator. You could deploy us as a daemon set. You can just run the Portworks pod on on any host in your cluster. So once you've done that. Um, once you've installed Portworks basically on each of your Kubernetes worker nodes, we are going to take the storage that's available on each individual server. So that basically the block devices that would be visible if you were to run LSBLK on on the command line on any of those hosts, we'll see a bunch of block devices. Um, it could be a single block device. It could be multiple block devices. You know, you might have some SSDs, some HHDs, you might have some NVMe. Um, if you're in the cloud, you might bootstrap each of your VMs with, say, uh, uh, an EBS volume on, on the cloud. Or, you know, you could, in your in your um, your vSphere data center, you might have, um, you know, each, each of those volumes might be a, a NetApp volume or an EMC volume. It, it really, from our perspective, it it doesn't matter. It's you know, there is some storage that's available on this host. Portworks will take that storage, combine it with all of the other storage available on each of the other nodes and turn it into a single cluster-wide storage fabric. From there, you can you know, deploy your Kubernetes applications by um, defining your deployment spec, uh, which would include, you know, if you're deploying Postgres, well, I need a volume, it needs to have this size, maybe it needs to have a particular performance profile, um, I need a certain guarantee a certain level of IOPS, I need to apply an encryption policy or a backup policy. You define all of that in your storage class or your PVC, um, and then Portworx makes it true. You, you deploy the application. We look at the underlying storage resources, and we basically match them to your desired state that's defined through configuration. Um, from there, let's say the customer said, I always want to have three copies of my data, right? Um, we will basically create replicas of that data somewhere else in the cluster. Um, and we, we understand network topologies such that say you're running in Amazon and your your Kubernetes cluster is spread out across two different availability zones, we'll place the replicas across those boundaries um, so that you kind of get the maximum amount of high availability just as a function of your network topology. Um, And then you talked about portability. So, okay, so now I have my application deployed within Amazon. I'm running um, across multiple uh, availability zones, I have uh, my performance profile that you know says some apps are running on NVMe, others are running on you know a block storage with dedicated IOPS. Portworx has done all of that for me automatically. But now let's say I want to take a backup, um, or I want to let, let's make it even more complex. I want to have a DR um, um, process for this application. What Portworx will then do to, to solve the portability problem is not just back up and move the data. Um, clearly, in order to, back, to have disaster recovery for a stateful service, um, you need to back up the data. But that's not enough um, in order to quickly recover your application. You also need the application configuration itself. So Portworx will move both the data and the application configuration 
between environments, say from Amazon um, East to Amazon West, or from Amazon to Azure, or from Amazon to your data center. It, does, it doesn't matter what the particular targets are, but we'll package up the data and the application configuration, which means when you need to recover that application, it's, it's simply a matter of redeploying the pods. Your app config is already there and it's already been remapped. So for instance, when you move those volumes, the, the UID of the volume is going to change. Um, and you, we would automatically rewrite your configuration YAML files using those new volume IDs, making recovering the application very, very fast. And this is just another example of one of the differences between Portwork's perspective of the world where we are a storage solution, but we think in terms of applications, not just in terms of infrastructure. And I don't know of any other um, uh, storage solutions that are going to back up application configuration and, and handle the rewriting of app config for the location of your infrastructure elements, like your volumes, in order to speed recovery. And we have um, you know, DR, uh, process, or DR capabilities that can do zero RPO um, by, by spanning a single Portworx cluster across environments um, when the latencies are not too great in order to do that. Um, or we can do snapshot based, but in both instances, we can guarantee that low RTO or recovery time objective because the app config is moved along with the data. So that that's how we think about portability. So uh, at a certain extent, uh, uh, looks like that uh, because you have this storage layer that uh, sits into Kubernetes and uh, you know can can be uh, on the cloud as well as on premises. So especially on premises, you can theoretically take advantage of existing storage resources in the storage network okay? instead of using a storage that is in the local mode and making it, uh, you know, uh, making a, a, uh, enabling to, re, to reuse existing resources. This is probably why some of the of your investors are big uh, uh, primary storage vendors. Yeah, so um, uh, in our, our latest round of funding, uh, NetApp participated, um, HPE participated, as did Cisco. Um, and yes, absolutely, there's, there's a desire to make those existing investments on the customer work for um, Kubernetes deployments. Um, and you're exactly right. A, a customer doesn't have to say, you know what, I've made this investment in a really great storage array. And I know that it doesn't quite meet the needs of my Kubernetes deployments, but, you know, man, I would really like to be able to use it and not have to buy new hardware. Um, Portworks makes it possible to do that. So you can, you can use your existing storage with the Portworks software layer on top and, and truly have a cloud native solution. Um, this is different from saying using CSI directly, because if you use CSI directly, again, CSI does not define any particular behavior. So CSI doesn't mean that your storage array is going to suddenly um, uh, be migrating application configuration uh, between environments in order to ensure low RTOs, right? They're, they're going to handle RPOs, how much data you're going to lose. But in terms of application recovery, that's kind of not their level of concern. Um, so with Portworks, you know, to, uh, to, to, to borrow a phrase, you, can, you have the best of both worlds. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, we... Um... I think I think that this conversation was great. I mean, we only scratched the surface here, and uh, uh, to wrap up the episode, would be nice to have uh, uh, a few links about Portworx where we can find uh, your company on Twitter as well as uh, 
um, on the web. And maybe if you want to share your Twitter handle with us, somebody can contact you directly to continue this uh, chat. Yes, absolutely. So I, I'd love to continue the conversation. Um, on Twitter, I'm Ferranti M. Um, at Ferranti M, that's F-E-R-R-A-N-T-I, and then the, the letter M, my uh, Ferranti and my first name, Michael. Um, and then you can find Portworks on Twitter at, at P-O-R-T-W-X. Um, that's Portworks uh, without a couple of letters because, uh, as you know, it's hard to get a good Twitter handle these days. So um, P-O-R-T-W-X. Um, or you can just you can just mention Portworks and, and we'll find it. Great. Uh, thank you again for a nice conversation and um, bye-bye. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This was uh, very enlightening. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in Data Storage, please check out the other ones. Unstructured data management is the focus of a report Enrica wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how data storage is evolving in the cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.